Last week in our time together, we reflected on what it means to be a true progressive. But what does progress actually look like? That's my question for this morning. What is the secret of true progress? Throughout the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, a combination of factors and ideas led liberal Protestant theologians to speak of history as a process of divine education through reason and for the sake of human freedom. God's will for your life is that you be educated and self-actualising. Instead of seeking salvation from the coming judgment, Christianity, a word which here means the moral teachings of Jesus, Christianity was held to contribute to the moral and cultural progress of humanity. As Jesus himself had taught, the kingdom of God is within you or within your midst. Modernist ideas of progress via human achievement were liberally added to the mix and whether these were the increasingly ambitious claims for supremacy of human reason in all affairs or the belief in, if not the perfectibility, then the ideal improvability of humankind, that is, we can make a difference, won the day. These ideas in turn rested on Hegel's philosophy of history, possibly the ugliest German philosopher in modern history. Hegel's philosophy of history described the movement of absolute spirit through the various points of transition that are the existence of finite beings on the way to the spirit's absolute fulfilment. Basically, all our wonderfully autonomous and ever-improving lives are together the sum of God's self-determination for himself. What could possibly go wrong? Certainly nothing that a good Reich or three couldn't fix. The net effect of this heady mix of lies and delusions was the transformation of Romantic Europeans' understanding of the Kingdom of God with a liberal Protestantism of cultural eschatological heaven on earth. Heaven would be realised on earth in the form of rational and free individuals establishing modern nation-states free individuals like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. But are any of these ideas of progress what Jesus of Nazareth actually taught, especially about the Kingdom of God? What we'll see from the Lucan reading this morning is that rather than self-actualisation or self-determination, true progress comes from honest attention and enduring dependence on the words of Jesus. True progress comes from honest attention and enduring dependence on the words of Jesus. So let's uh, get back into the story of Luke since we were last together or previously in Luke's Gospel. The movement that Jesus has started last time we were together is now well and truly underway. Yet as we noted last week, the Jesus movement is only one group amongst a number of others who have been caught up in the wake of this great prophet through whom God has visited his people, as we're told in Luke 7, verse 16. The crowds continue to swarm around Jesus like so many insects at a fluorescent globe, and the shallowness of their incessant jostling and bustling is highlighted 
by those unexpected moments or encounters of intimacy between Jesus and seemingly random individuals, like the Gentile centurion, who we read in Luke 7 verse 9, Jesus heard the words of the centurion and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found faith so great even in Israel. Then there's the achingly beautiful tale of the sinful woman who found salvation in utter self-abasement. Or in Luke chapter 7, verse 38, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with fragrant oil. Now, of course, some of those drawn along in Jesus' wake are less certain before him. John the Baptist's followers heard of Jesus' deeds, but they're having some doubts. As we saw in Luke 7, verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things, so John summoned two of them and sent them to the Lord, asking, Are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? Lastly, of course, there are others within the crowd who distinguish themselves as the men with brooms busily trying to sweep back the tide of Jesus' progress. The Pharisees have rejected John and are perpetually indignant with this young rabbi Jesus. Or as we read in chapter 7, verse 29, when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged God's righteous ways because they'd been baptised by John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts of the law had not been baptised by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. In Simon the Pharisee, we see the enemies of mercy and forgiveness. Those who oppose the progress of Jesus' mission, they actually oppose salvation. So then, to Luke chapter 8. To know the secret of true progress we must attend honestly. And we learned last week that Jesus is God's spirit-empowered preacher of good news. And that's exactly where our passage takes up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. After he was travelling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. Now the thing is, at this point, apart from the odd aphorism here or there, about sewing patches onto old goon bags or blind leading the blinds or good and bad fruit from trees, Jesus' prophetic ministry consists rather of pithy or mundane stories where creditors forgive debtors or as we read here in chapter 8, Farmer Phil went out one day out to sow the seed. He scatters here, he scatters there, he scatters, scatters everywhere. Farmer Phil went out one day out to sow the seed. That's from the CBV version, <laughs> the Colin Buchanan translation. But if we attend honestly to these earthy anecdotes, the Lord will teach us what true, true progress actually looks like. You see, in the story of the sower, we have Jesus' own interpretation of the progress of his ministry. The Pharisees are the seed on the path. The crowds are the seed on the rocky ground. The disciples of John are the seeds amongst the weeds. And the sinful woman, the widow of Nain, and the Roman centurion are the good soil 
in which the coming kingdom is previewed. Or as Jesus said, quoting Isaiah in Luke 7:22, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Now perhaps I'm reading a little bit too much into the story at this stage. It's hardly clear to Jesus' own disciples what he's talking about. And in fact, Jesus himself indicates that the parables are purposefully obscure. So we must inquire of him alone for their secretive meaning. Look at verse 10 of chapter 8. He said to his disciples, The secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, but to the rest it's in parables, so that looking they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. The secrets belong to Jesus for him to share with his movement. And so we learn apart from these, the judgment of God is falling on Israel as Isaiah had foreseen. Some hear the word of God, but fall victim to the devil. It seems ironic that in John's story, the Pharisees will be referred to as the sons of Satan. Some hear the word of God joyfully like the crowds. Thou shalt, Hosanna, lay down their robes and palm leaves. But Jesus won't turn out to be the king that they're after. And they become a mob. Some hear the word of God and respond, but not in a way that keeps them in the flow of Jesus' movement. They falter like the disciples of John or the rich young man who went away sad. But some hear the word of God with an honest and good heart, holding on to it and enduring produced fruit. Now it's too early in the story for us to observe enduring dependence yet. As I hinted though, we do have some prime examples of honest attention to the words of Jesus. Come with me back to chapter 7. The secret of the Roman centurion's honest attention to Jesus was not his surprising philanthropy towards a conquered people. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. When the Jews sent by the centurion reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and built us a synagogue. However, the secret of progress in this man what makes him good soil is in fact the opposite. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7. Lord, don't trouble yourself since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be cured. The secret of honest attention to Jesus' words is realising that you are unworthy even to have him speak to you. We're not worthy to be in the presence of such authority. And yet, that is why he came. And so having acknowledged the faith of this foreigner, the slave is healed, just like that. For the Lord is mighty. Progress takes place in the good soil when people honestly attend to their unworthy state before the Lord of the harvest. 
And the secret of this sinful woman's honest attention to Jesus is not her elaborate act of social nicety towards him, as breathtakingly tender as it was. Look at verse 44 of chapter 7. Turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That is why she loves so much. The secret of good soil is realising that you've been forgiven much and so you love much. For we know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins and so he declares this woman to be forgiven. So the secret of honest attention is knowing that we are unworthy of the word of forgiveness that has been spoken to us. It's that simple. We are unworthy of the word of forgiveness that is spoken to us. It's a world away from the mawkish attempts of our modern culture to discover our authentic selves. It's nothing so vacuous as reaching our full potential or so menial as making our dreams come true. It's honest attention to the word of Jesus, not endless obsession with a gap between our ideal selves and our everyday life. But what is the enduring dependence of the good soil? Where shall we uncover that secret? Coming back to chapter 8, there could be a danger with all this talk about secrets that the Jesus movement has the same exclusive ways of that of the Pharisees with their special disciplines and practices. The Jesus group, they have secrets. Yet the secrets of the coming kingdom are only to be concealed for a short time. Otherwise, as Jesus says in verse 17, Nothing is concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. But when? When will that secret be made known? Well, that takes the whole story though. The secret of enduring dependence is revealed at the resurrection when the one, the only one who did not live by bread alone but by the very word of God is revealed in the power of God's spirit. Jesus of Nazareth himself is the best soil. It's the Lord himself, the sower of the seed, who worshipped God and him alone, who did not put God to the test, but drank the cup of God's wrath, all as it is written in the word of God. It's the Lord himself who at the cross in Luke 23:46 called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. That is the enduring dependence. And it's from the best soil that the fruit of the gospel has been handed down in enduring dependence to us. It was the enduring dependence of the apostles that first proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus. It was the enduring dependence of the persecuted and the marginalised that gathered their, tem their testimony into our scriptures. It was the enduring dependence of the defenders of faith who fought heretics, hammered out creeds and sent missionaries across the far horizon even to this brown land. 
It was the enduring dependence of the Christian families and youth groups and campus Bible studies who taught us the word of God. It's this enduring dependence for which we must give great thanks and in which we must play our own small part. Brothers and sisters, the season of mission is upon us. In fact, some of our number have already departed. Many have pleaded with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his fields. And we will be the answer to their prayers. Some have already planted, others have watered, and all are still waiting upon the Lord to give the growth. We'll walk along hard paths and see the seeds snatched up by the birds. We'll see green shoots wither on rocky ground. We'll see fields infested with thorns. But if we're to see good seed, good soil, we must attend honestly and endure dependently. Have admitted our own unworthiness and the greatness of our forgiveness then in the Lord's kindness we may see the secret of true progress. Amen.